0: A quartet of men left Rome. It was about the year 62 A.D., and these men were bound for the province of Asia, which was located in what is currently designated as Asia Minor. One of these men was going into Macedonia. Now, these men had on their persons four of the most sublime compositions of the Christian faith. These precious documents would be invaluable if they were in existence today. Rome did not comprehend the significance of the writings of an unknown prisoner. If they had, then they would have apprehended these men, and the documents would have been seized. "...and when these men bade farewell to the Apostle Paul, each was given an epistle to bear to his particular constituency." Now, these four letters are designated in the Word of God as the prison epistles of Paul. He wrote them while he was imprisoned in Rome, awaiting a hearing before Nero, who was the Caesar at that particular time. Paul, as a Roman citizen, had appealed his case to him and was waiting to be heard. Now, this quartet of men and their respective places of abode can be identified. Epaphroditus was from Philippi, and he had the epistle to the Philippians. Tychicus was from Ephesus, and he had the epistle to the Ephesians. Now, the scriptures for that you find in Philippians 4.18 for Epaphroditus, for Tychicus, and Ephesians 6.21. I'll not turn to the scriptures because as we take up these epistles, I'll make reference to it. Now, Epaphras was from Colossae, and that's in Colossians 4.12, and he had the epistle to the Colossians. And then there was a man by the name of Anasimus, He was a runaway slave from Colossae, Philippians verse 10. And he had the epistle to Philemon, and Philemon was his master who was a believer in Christ. Now, these epistles present a composite picture of Christ, the church, the Christian life, and the interrelationship and functioning of all. These different facets present the Christian life On the highest plane, by the way. Now, Ephesians, the one that we're going to take up, presents the church, which is his body. This is the invisible church, of which Christ is the head. And Colossians presents Christ, the head of the body, the church. You see, in Ephesians, the emphasis is upon the body. In Colossians, the emphasis is upon the head. And in Philippians, that presents Christian living with Christ as the dynamic. I can do all things in Christ which strengtheneth me, Paul says in Philippians 4.13. Now, Philemon presents Christian living in action in a pagan society. Paul could write to Philemon, who was the master of this man Onesimus, And say, If thou count me therefore a prisoner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. Now, in other words, friends, the gospel walked in shoe leather in the first century. And by the way, it worked. And that is the thing that we're going to see in this epistle of Ephesians, as well as these others, when we come to them. Dr. Arthur Pearson called Ephesians Paul's third heaven epistle. Another's called it the Alps of the New Testament. It's the Mount Whitney of the high Sierras of all Scripture. It is the church epistle. And we now have arrived at what many expositors consider the highest peak of scriptural truth, the very apex and the very acme of Bible revelation is in Ephesians. Now, that may well be true. Some even suggest that Ephesians is so profound that none but the very elect, in other words, the chosen few, are the only ones that can understand it. And I've always noticed that the folk who say that, they always include themselves in that inner circle. I want to be very candid with you. I do not even pretend to be able to probe and to plumb the depths of this epistle, nor to ascend to its heights. This epistle is loft and it's heady. It's difficult to breathe the rarefied air of this epistle. And you're going to find that out when we get in it, too. I'm going to do the very best I can with the aid of the Holy Spirit as our guide to understand it. And I do want to make this statement here at the very beginning, and we'll see it now in just a moment. The two books of the Bible that men have always said you can't understand them are Ephesians and Revelation. Liberalism likes to say Revelation is just a conglomerate of symbols that no one can figure them out, and that Ephesians is so high that it's too high for us. Well, let me say this, that the two books of the Bible that can be arranged mathematically and logically are Ephesians and Revelation. There are no two books as logical as they are. Now, I have attempted to write a book known as Briefing the Bible. We mentioned that on the program, but that's one of the first books I wrote because I wanted to know what the Bible was about. I got tired of hearing folks say, I believe the Bible from cover to cover, and they didn't even know what was in the covers at all. They just had the pious statement. Their creed was, I believe it. Well, if you believe it's God's Word, my friend, you're going to try to find out what it says. And get off of this gimmick line that many are on today, And always talking about methods and how we can increase the number in Sunday school, how we can communicate with the younger generation, and how we can, you know, better organize the church. Well, that's all fine. It has its place. But let me tell you this. The important thing is to know what's in the book. Now, we attempted to go through and outline every book of the Bible. I have that in Briefing the Bible. Now, Ephesians and Revelation were the two easiest books in the Bible to outline. You know why? They're logical. Now, I don't pretend to be able to understand them, but I do want to say this. You can outline them, and Paul is logical in Ephesians, and John is logical in Revelation. The book of Revelation is outlined for us. He was told to write the things you have seen. Things are things things that will be. Now, that's a threefold division, and it's arranged according to sevens. You couldn't have it any better than that. Now, the epistle to the Ephesians is logical. And the very interesting thing is, you can outline it very easily. And so I'd like to just say a word about the outline of this epistle. And then I want to say a word about Paul and Ephesus, because that's important for us to see Now, there are six chapters here. The first three chapters, you have the heavenly calling of the church. This is the doctrinal side. In the last three chapters, you have the earthly conduct of the church, which is very practical. You see, the church has a head. The head of the church is Christ. He's in heaven we're identified with Him. But you see, the feet of the church are down here on the earth. And Paul won't leave you sitting up there in the heavenlies. Because one of the things he's telling you at the beginning of chapter 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, what he's saying is this. He says, Christian, it's nice to sit up there in the heavenlies and boast of your position in Christ. But he says, for goodness sakes, get down out of your high chair and start walking, because you need to walk. And remember, in that day, they were walking in a pagan society in the Roman world. Then there's something else that I think is quite interesting. He says, also, as soldiers, you're to stand. So when you get tired of sitting in the heavenlies... It might be well for you to come down to earth and walk down here on the earth. Now, that makes a nice division, does it not? First three chapters, doctrinal. Last three chapters, practical. And we need both. Don't just live in the first three chapters. Oh, they're wonderful, but get down here where we live today. Right down where the rubber meets the road. Right down here where the nitty-gritty is. Where you live and move and have your being. Now, in chapter 1, it's very logical, the church is a body, chapter 1. Chapter 2, the church is a temple. And then chapter 3, the church is a mystery. Now, these are the three chapters of doctrine. Now, when you come down to the practical part in chapter 4, the church is a new man. That is, the church is to exhibit something new in the world, walking through the world as a new man. Then you have, in chapter 5, the church will be a bride. Now, don't get the idea that the church is a bride. The church is not a bride today. The church is a church. Paul said to the Corinthians, I've espoused you as a chaste virgin to Christ. I'm just getting you engaged. We're engaged to him today. But the church someday will be a bride. Then the church is a soldier of Jesus Christ. That's chapter six. And a WAG who heard me give this down in Florida, he said to me, he says that's interesting. The church will be a bride, you say, and the church is a soldier. He says, you know, for a lot of marriages down here today, why they get married first and then the fighting starts. Well, it ought not to be that way, because That's not the way Paul gives it to us. Now, these are the practical aspects. The church is a soldier. There's an enemy to be fought today. There's a battle going on. And the bugle is sounded. And we need to stand the day for God in this world. Now you have, in chapter 1, where we're going to begin, the church is a body. And you know that's interesting. Here again, you can divide it into three parts. And I'll come to this later, but just let me mention it now. God the Father planned the church, verses 3 through 6. God the Son paid the price for the church, verses 7 through 12. And then God the Holy Spirit protects the church, verses 13 and 14. And this was so wonderful that Paul concluded chapter 1, "...prayer for knowledge and power." And we're going to pause for that, too, when we get there, because this is great. This is wonderful. I hope it'll be meaningful to you. Now, let's look at Paul now in Ephesus, because it's important for us to see this. I had the privilege back in 71 in May of visiting Turkey. And I visited all the seven churches of Asia Minor and Ephesus is where I spent the most time. Now, to me, the greatest thrill of my ministry was to visit these seven churches. And the number one church was Ephesus. And a great city, by the way, as we shall see. Now, the Holy Spirit would not permit Paul on his second missionary journey to enter the province of Asia where Ephesus was the leading center. And we're told in Acts 16:6, 6, "...and when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia." Now, in other words, the Holy Spirit put up a roadblock and said to Paul, you can't go down there now. Now, I do not know why, but it was not the right moment. And so this man... He went on west into Macedonia, to Philippi, down to Berea, down to Athens, over to Corinth. And then on the way back, he came by Ephesus. And oh, what a tremendous opportunity he saw there. In Acts 18:19, I read, he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And so this man, Paul, saw what a tremendous opportunity there was. And on his third missionary journey, he came here. And he discovered that another by the name of Apollos had been there in the interval and between his second and third missionary journeys. But he'd only preached the baptism of John, not the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. At that time, why he didn't know about it, Apollos didn't. Later on, he became a great preacher of the gospel himself. Now, Paul began a ministry there that was far-reaching. Actually, it's my firm conviction, having visited Turkey and seen that area and read a great deal on the excavations that have been made there, that the greatest ministry that the gospel has ever had was in what is today modern Turkey. That in that day as today, there were millions of people living there. It was the very heart of the Roman Empire. The culture of Greece was no longer in Greece. It was now over along this coast, the western coast of Turkey. Ephesus being the leading city. Great cultural center, great religious center. And the Roman empress came to this area. The climate was great. And it was a wonderful place to visit. Millions of people there, friends. And here is where the gospel had its greatest entrance. In fact, Paul could write. Do you remember later on as he wrote to the Corinthians, he says, "...I'll carry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door ineffectual is opened unto me." And there are many adversaries. And he met opposition there. But did you know that he went into the synagogue, as Dr. Luke tells us in Acts 19, verses 8 through 10. He went into the synagogue. He spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitudes... He departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this was a tremendous impact, friends, that the gospel made upon that area. Now, Paul began there in the synagogue. I wonder what some of these hyper-separationists who've written me, by the way, some very unlovely letters. They may be lovely Christians themselves, but they don't write lovely letters, I can tell you that. And they've criticized me for going into a Catholic monastery and giving out the Word of God. I wonder what they would say about Paul going into a synagogue, which was, I would say, in that day, actually farther from God than even a monastery. May I say to you, my friend today, I think that Paul would go anywhere if he could preach the gospel. And since that was the way he did it, I want to do it the same way. Now, I don't compromise with the system. I think the system is absolutely wrong. And when we get to Revelation, you're going to hear me say some very strong things. Some of you may wonder how I've been able to stay on the air all these years. But I want to make it very clear to you that I'll go anywhere I can preach the gospel, give the Word of God. And I want to say something else. I remember hearing the late Dr. Harry Rimmer. Someone criticized him in downtown Los Angeles for going out and speaking in a liberal church. And he answered like this. Why? He says, Madam, I would go to hell and preach the gospel if I had a return ticket. May I say to you, this idea today that we are to be so separated, my friend, let's get the word of God out today and take it anywhere, provided they'll let us take it. And do you know what? Here's one fellow that no one's been able to say, I don't give out the Word of God. You can't say that and be honest in making that statement. Therefore, I'll go anywhere I can. I go to all kinds of churches. I criticize the Pentecostals. I go and preach for them, too. Anywhere they let me give out the Word of God, I'll go. And my friends, I have a good example. Paul began in Ephesus. And the Word of God went out from there so that everyone in Asia heard it. Don't you want them to hear it today? Let's get the Word of God out. Now, this was a glorious city. It was probably the second most important city in the Roman Empire, only second to Rome in influence. It was a city that had a culture that was largely Greek at this particular time that Paul was there. The city was founded probably 2,000 B.C. by the Hittites. And it was what we would call an Oriental city, Asian city, until about 1,000 B.C., and the Greeks came in. And then you have a mixture of east and west. Actually, Kipling is wrong as far as Ephesus is concerned. He said, East is east, and west is west, and never the twain shall meet. But they did meet in Ephesus, and over this long period of probably 2,500 years, this city was one of the great cities of the world, a cosmopolitan place. It was on a harbor that now is all filled up, silted in, and it's not a harbor anymore. In fact, it's about 10 kilometers, about six miles from the ocean today, But when Paul went there the first time, he sailed right up to that beautiful marble, white marble freeway, if you please, because it was a very wide street, and this beautiful Parian marble was everywhere, and the quarries of Mount Prion had supplied the marble, and there was the art and the wealth of the Ephesian citizens, and as a result... They had built there one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was that vulgar idol of Diana. And it was housed in one of the most beautiful temples ever built. And it was that temple that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In it was some of the most wonderful artworks. Apelle's uh, great picture of Alexander the Great hurling the thunderbolt was in there. It was the largest Greek temple ever built, four times larger than the Parthenon, and very similar to it. It was 418 feet long by about 239 feet wide, and the columns, over a hundred of the exterior columns. But inside was this vulgar idol of Diana. It was not the beautiful Diana of Greek mythology, but it was actually the Anatolian conception, the goddess of fertility, not the goddess of the moon, but the goddess of fertility, the many-breasted one, and all sorts of gross immorality took place in the shadow of this temple. This was what Paul had to contend against in the party that was with him. But here the gospel was preached with such great power And as a result, they had a riot in the city. There were those that led a rebellion against Paul because he was putting them out of the business of making these little idols of Diana. And he was preaching a gospel of the living God, that there was life through Jesus Christ. And the believers that turned, there was a great company of them. I think the gospel was more effective in this area than any place and at any time in the history of the world. And there came into existence, this Ephesian church. And that church is the highest church spiritually, I think, of any. The epistle to the Ephesians reveal that. To me, the amazing thing is there were people living in that pagan city who understood this epistle. Paul wouldn't have written it to them if they couldn't have understood it. And not only that. You find that in the seven churches of Asia, the first one is Ephesus. And that is a series of churches that give the entire history of the church. And Ephesus was the church at its best, the highest spiritual level. You and I today can't even conceive of the high spiritual level that the Spirit of God had brought these Ephesian believers, where they loved the person of the Lord Jesus, drawn to him. Oh, today in our churches, and now I hope I won't be misunderstood again because I've been a pastor for years. I have a pastor's heart. I love to minister in our churches today. But we're far from the person of Christ. We're so enamored with a program. We're so enamored with an office. We're so enamored with doing some work in the church. And we're far from the person of Christ. The big question would be, how much really do you love him? Paul's going to tell these Ephesians, Christ loved the church. He gave himself for it. Well, do you return that love? Do you respond to him? Can you say to him, I love him because he first loved me? Well, this letter to the Ephesians ought to bring us very close to Christ. Now, as we come here to this first chapter, the church is a body, the body of Christ in the world today. We're going to see in the first two verses an introduction. Then we'll see God the Father plan the church in verses 3 through 6. Remember the Lord Jesus said, A body hast thou prepared me. And he came to this earth yonder Bethlehem, given a body. Grew up yonder Nazareth. Became a carpenter. And Mary's Husband Joseph taught Jesus to be a carpenter. And then for three years he ministered, finally died on the cross, shed his blood for you and me. And then we have in verses 7 through 12, God the Son paid the price for the church. We have redemption through his blood. And then God the Holy Spirit protects the church, verses 13 through 14, by one Spirit. Are we all baptized into one body? Then you have prayer for knowledge and power. And we need that prayer as we come to this epistle today and let us pray. Lord, we do pray. You'll make real and living this epistle to our hearts. For we pray in Jesus' name. Now, here in the introduction, as we come, we have the heavenly calling of the church, the vocalization. And we have here the churches of body. And I read the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints that are at Ephesus, even to the believers in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you probably, as you followed the text, and I do hope that you have your Bible... Some of you are listening to us today at work. Some of you are riding along the highway, but for goodness sakes, don't try to read it while you're driving, but pull over to the side and just turn there to this text, and you'll find it indeed very helpful. Now, as you follow along, you'll notice I changed some things, and this is, first of all, a brief introduction, and it's brief for several reasons. It's Brief because, very frankly, this epistle was directed to the church in Ephesus, but in some of the better manuscripts, an Epheso is left out. It's not there. Which just simply means this, that it was apparently the epistle that Paul referred to when he said in Colossians to read the epistle to the Laodicean. In other words, this was a circular letter that went around. And I think it was primarily for the church, of course, in Ephesus, but for the churches in that day. And he's not writing here to the local church as much as he is to the church in general. That is the invisible body of believers. We're going to see that. Paul, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to change that just a little. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Why do I say that? And I hope you'll not think I'm splitting hairs here, but he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul, all the way through this epistle and many other places, it should be Christ Jesus. Christ is the title of coerce. That's who he is. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus was his human name. Paul could say that we know him no longer after the flesh. Paul didn't know him, the Jesus of the three years' ministry. He says, I met him on the Damascus Road, and he was the glorified Christ. I know him as the glorified Christ. And he emphasized always the name Christ first, Christ Jesus But he says, I am an apostle. Now, what is an apostle? Well, that's the highest office the church has ever had. No one today is an apostle in the church. For the simple reason, they can't even meet the requirements. To begin with, the apostles received their commission directly from the living lips of Jesus. You will find Paul made that claim. He said, I am an apostle, not by the will of man but by the will of God. And I'm an apostle that's been made an apostle directly by Jesus Christ. And that's the reason that I believe Paul took the place of Judas and not Mattathias. They voted Mattathias in. I don't find anywhere Jesus Christ making him an apostle. All the apostles apparently received their commission directly from the living lips of the Lord Jesus. Now, the second requirement for an apostle was the apostles saw the Savior after his resurrection. Paul could meet that requirement, as you know. And then the third requirement of an apostle was they exercised a special inspiration. They expounded and wrote Scripture. And certainly Paul measures up to that more than any other. And then the fourth, they exercised supreme authority. The Lord Jesus said actually to them, all powers given unto you. And the badge of their authority was the power to work miracles. And miracles, I think, ceased with the apostles, because that was their badge in that day. And John could say, before he finished his long ministry, probably at the close of the first century, he could say, if any, come to you not having this doctrine, no longer a miracle worker, but not having this doctrine. The doctrine's important today. And then they were given a universal commission to found churches. These are six requirements that an apostle must meet, and Paul certainly met that. Then he says here that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul rested his apostleship upon the will of God rather than any personal ambition or on man or whether the church made him an apostle, but he's an apostle by the will of God. Over in Galatians, the first chapter, verse 15, he says, But when it pleased God, "...who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen." So that Paul says, I'm this kind of an apostle, that is, by the will of God. And he said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1:12 and 13, "...and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful." Putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now Paul made constant reference to the will of God as the foundation of his apostleship. You'd like to check that. look at first Corinthians one one second Corinthians one one, Colossians one one, second Timothy one one In all of these places. Paul says he's an apostle by the will of God. Now, he says to the saints in Ephesus, the word for saint is hagios. It actually means separated or set aside for the sole use of God. That is, that which belongs to God. For instance, the pots and pans in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, they were called holy vessels. Why? Why? because they were specially holy, very fine, and nice. No, I think they were all beat up and battered after that long wilderness journey, but they were for the use of God. And my friend, a saint is one who's trusted Christ. In fact, there are only two kinds of people today, the saints and the ain'ts. And if you're not a saint, you're an ain't. And if you ain't an ain't, then you're a saint, you see. So that a saint is one who's trusted Christ, and he's set aside for the sole use of God. Now, there's some of the saints not being used of God, of course. But that's their fault. They are for the use of God, and therefore his service. Therefore, saints should act saintly. It's true. But they're not saints because of the way they act. They're saints because of their position in Christ, and their belong to him to be used of him. Then he says in Ephesus, and I've already referred to that. It could be in your town, whatever the name of it is. For me, it could be in Pasadena. And he says, even to the believers. Now, the believers and saints are the same, you see. They're the same people. A saint should be saintly, and a believer should be faithful. But a believer is one who's trusted Christ, and a saint is the same one. Now, the term saint, I think, is the Godward aspect of the Christian. The term believer is the manward aspect of the believer. Now, they're in Christ Jesus, and this is probably the most wonderful thing of all. And this epistle is going to amplify that so much that I will be dwelling on that in more detail later on. But to me, the most important word in the New Testament is the little preposition in, in. Theologians have come up with some lulus trying to tell us what it means to be saved. How do you define our salvation? Well, they've come up with the word redemption, atonement, justification, reconciliation, propitiation, and vicarious substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. And all of those are good I'm not finding fault with them. I think they're wonderful. But each one of them merely gives one aspect of our salvation. What does it really mean to be saved? To be saved means to be in Christ. We are irrevocably and organically joined to Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're put in the body of believers. And we're told he that's joined unto the Lord is one Spirit. We belong to him. And there's nothing as wonderful, therefore, as that. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Can you improve on that? We're in Christ Jesus. That's the great accomplishment of salvation. Dr. Chafer found that it occurred 130 times in the New Testament. How wonderful it is. The Lord Jesus used it. He says, ye and me and I in you. And we're in Christ. Now, the bird is in the air, but the air is in the bird. The Lord Jesus said, ye and me, and I in you. I can't explain that. It's so profound. But the fish is in the water, and the water's in the fish. The iron is in the fire, and the fire's in the iron. And the believer is in Christ, and Christ. Is in the believer. We are joined to him. The head is in the body. The body is in the head. My body can't move without the head directing it. Now, the church, which is his body, is in Christ, the head, and all the truths of this epistle of Ephesians revolve around this great fact. Now, friends, I feel very keenly that these epistles should be given top priority. Romans, Galatians and Ephesians, and we spent quite a bit of time with 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I feel like that these have a throbbing, personal, living message for you and me today, probably as no other portion of the Scripture does. In other words, when God said to Joshua, Arise, go over this Jordan. I know he's not talking to me, but it has a special message for me and it has a special interpretation, as I know it meant to Joshua, but to me it has an application. In fact, the epistle to the Ephesians is the Joshua of the New Testament, and we're going to see that. Now we got down to verse two of chapter one. We're not moving very fast. Now let me read. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we are going to talk about this word grace a great deal in this epistle. And I'm going to pass by it with just a word or two. It was a word of greeting, and the word grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace was the Gentile form of greeting in that day. The word in the Greek was charis. Two men meet on the street, one would say to another charis. I was walking down the street in Athens with a Greek friend of mine who was a missionary. And he spoke to several people as we went by. And I said to him, it sounds to me like you greet them with the word charis. And he laughed and he said, well, it's similar to it. So that apparently today it's still a form of greeting. Grace be to you, and peace. Now, the word in the Gentile world, the pagan world, the secular world, was the word grace. Now, the word that is the religious word is the word peace. That is the word that you would hear in Jerusalem, shalom, grace to you and peace, and Paul has given both of these words a wonderful meaning. In fact, the matter is, he's lifted them to the height. And the grace of God is the means by which God saves us. We'll see that when we come to the second chapter here, and I'll talk about it then. But you must know the grace of God before you can experience the peace of God. And Paul always puts them in that order, grace before you can have peace. And today, you see everywhere the word peace. Of course, what they're talking about is generally peace in some section of the world, or world peace is what they're talking about. But the world can never know peace until it knows the grace of God. And the interesting thing is you don't see the word grace around very much. You see the word love. You see the word peace today. They are very familiar words. They are supposed to be taken from the Bible, but they don't mean when you see it on a bumper sticker of a car. It doesn't mean there what it means in the Word of God, and we'll have occasion to call attention to that. Now, this peace is peace, first of all, with God, because your sins are forgiven, and your sins can never be forgiven until you know something of the grace of God. Now, the grace and peace is from God our Father... And he becomes our Father when we experience the grace of God and regenerated by the Spirit of God. And it's from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is interesting. Doesn't Paul believe in the Trinity? Why didn't he say from the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit was in Ephesus, indwelling believers. The Lord Jesus was seated at God's right hand in the heavens. So that we need to keep our geography straight. When we study the Bible, a great many people get their theology warped because they don't have the geography right. And when we get that straightened out, it even helps our theology. Now, will you notice we come to a marvelous verse here. It's verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in "...heavenly places in Christ." Now, that is a very wonderful expression, but I'm going to change that just a little today. "...blessed here be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies." And you'll notice, "...places." Are in italics in the text, in Christ. Now, we notice here that there's something that is very important here. He has blessed us. We praise him with our lips, because he first made us blessed. And our blessing is a declaration. His blessings are deeds. We pronounce him blessed. He makes us blessed. Now, what does it mean, blessed? Well, the word has in it the thought of happiness and joy. God is rejoicing today, and God is happy today because he has a way of saving you, and he can bless you, and this is so wonderful. In fact, the matter is, I can't think of anything more wonderful than this, and he hath blessed us. Now... He's not speaking here of something that may be ours when we get to heaven. But he's speaking of something that's ours right now. Somebody says to me, have you had the second blessing? Second blessing? My friend, I'm working way up in the hundreds. In fact, up in the thousands. I've not only had a second blessing. I've had a thousand blessings, by the way. And he's blessed us. And he's done it in Christ. And we're going to see that here because that's something else. And here we are, blessed with all spiritual blessings, and we should see this. It's in the heavenlies. I don't know exactly where the heavenlies are, but I do know where the Lord Jesus is. He's at God's right hand, and we're told here that these blessings are in Christ. Well, may I say to you that we need to be careful with this. He doesn't say here that these blessings are with Christ. Now, there are those that read it like that. Right now, you and I are seated in Christ. Somebody says, you go into heaven someday? The answer is, that's generally given. Well, I hope so. Well, let me say this to you. If you're going to heaven, you're already there in Christ. He's blessed you in the heavenlies, in Christ. And you are there, my friend, regardless of what your position is down here. You're in Christ. Why, your practice down here may not be good. But if you're a child of God, you're already in Christ. Now, some people even misunderstand it like this. I was teaching Ephesians not long ago in a conference. And they called on a brother at the end of the service to lead in prayer. And he got up and he says that, Lord, we just thank you that this morning we've been sitting in the heavenly places in Christ. Well, he missed the point again. We didn't have to come to a Bible study, as important as that is. And have our hearts thrilled with these great spiritual truths to be sitting in the heavenlies. The fact of the matter is, you're in the heavenlies in Christ. Even, my friend, when you're down in the dumps, you can be down in the dumps. But if you're in Christ, you're seated in him. That's something that he's done for us. Now, he's blessed. Blessed be the God and Father. We praise him. Why? Why? Because he's blessed us, now he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings. And I want you to see something to me that is a tragic thing today, and it's this. The picture that's given, of course, is the book of Joshua, as we've said before. That the children of Israel were given the land of Canaan. And by the way, Canaan is not heaven. Canaan is a picture of where we live today. Canaan could never be heaven because there was enemies there to be fought. There was battles to be fought. And when you get to heaven, they won't be there. Down here is where the battle is being fought. And the interesting thing is this. God gave them the land. But he said to them, every place that your foot shall stand upon, that's going to be yours. That's what he told Joshua. But couldn't Joshua say, well, Lord, you've already given it to us. Let us walk in and take it. My friend, God has blessed us today with all spiritual blessings. We're in Christ. And have you ever stopped to think of what we have in Christ? Christ has been made unto us. He's been made sanctification, justification. I started out in a church as a boy working for my salvation. I didn't do very well with that. May I say to you, Christ is my justification. And then I got saved, and then I tried to work to be good. I didn't do very well at that either. And then I found out that Christ has been made unto me sanctification. May I say I've got everything in him, blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Friends, you can't improve on that, can you? At least I don't think you can. All of that that you have in Christ. And when you come to Christ, you get everything in him. Don't come and tell me today that I have to wait later on and that I have to tarry and wait for the Holy Spirit to give me something special, a baptism or something. Why, well, my friend, I've got it all in Christ. And that's when you say Christ is a curse. You say Christ is a curse when you say to me, I don't get everything in Christ. I got everything when I came to him. Now, there are two ways, though. You've got to lay hold of these possessions, your spiritual possessions. They're yours. I want to tell two stories today, and both of them are true. I was in Chicago many years ago, picked up the evening paper during the week, and this was a little clipping, a little article, and I clipped it out that was on the front page, actually, of the paper, but way down at the bottom, wouldn't have to be noticed. And here was the byline, Chicago, June 9. The flophouses and saloons of Chicago's skid row were searched today for one Stanley William McKenna Walker, 50, an Oxford graduate, and heir to half of an $8 million English estate. The missing persons detail hope that somewhere among the down-and-outers who line the curbs and sleep off wine binges in the cheap hotels, they would find Walker, son of a wealthy British shipbuilder. You know, when I read that, I thought how tragic it is. Imagine being an heir to a half of $8 million and being a wino that's sleeping in two-bit hotels In Chicago, my friend, I felt like sitting down and weeping for that poor fellow to think that that was true of him. And then I got to thinking, just think of the children of God today. They're living in cheap hotels. They are living off of the little wine of this world. And I don't mean that necessarily literally, but they engage in cheap entertainment down here. And they are wealthy beyond the dreams of Croesus. Imagine being blessed with all spiritual blessings and living like a pauper down here. And there are a lot of folk in our churches today living just like that. This was tragic. And later on, I was telling that story here in Los Angeles when I was past. And a lady came up to me afterward. She was a visitor from Chicago. She said, Dr. McGee, do you know how that that story worked out? What really happened? I said, no, I never heard. She said, well, they found him. Oh, I said, well, that was wonderful. No, she said it wasn't quite so wonderful. She said they found him dead, sleeping in a doorway a cold night later on that fall in Chicago, dead. And I thought, oh my, how tragic it is to live like that in this life. My, I tell you, to have that and uh, die like that man died. And a lot of Christians live and die just like that, and yet they're blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Now, there's something else that we have in Christ, and I want to tell this other story, and this is a story that is also true. There was out west here years ago on heir to a British nobleman. He was one of the heirs, and he was also living in poverty, just eking out a struggling existence. And finally, when this nobleman died, they began to look for him, and they found him. And when they found him, they told him that he was the heir. And you know the great deal of publicity was made of it. You know what that fellow did? Well, he believed it. (laughs) He went down to the clothing store and showed them the article. And the lawyer that had come to look for him and had found him Why he was with him, and he said, I want the best suit of clothes you've got. And he bought a first-class ticket and returned back to England in style. You know why? He believed it. He believed that that was his. And he acted upon it. My friend, you can go either route you want to today. You can go first class as a Christian, or you can go down in the steerage. You can go second, third, fourth class. and a lot of Christians doing that today. But God wants you to know that you've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. Now, he hasn't promised us physical blessings. He has promised us spiritual blessings, and these are in the heavenlies, They're in Christ. And you're not going to have any spiritual blessing in this life that doesn't come to you through Jesus Christ, my friend. That's just how important He is. He not only has saved us, but He is the one today that blesses us. Oh, how we need to lay hold of Him in faith and start living as a child of God should live. Now we come here to this section that is very important. We have attempted to give you this outline before here. We have God the Father plan the church. You see, you wouldn't even build a house today without a blueprint. At least, I don't think you would. You'd be very foolish if you did build a house without a blueprint. And here we find that God the Father planned the church. Now, what did he do in planning for the church? Well, there are three things that are mentioned here. He chose us in Christ. And second, he predestinated us to the place of sonship. And third, he made us accepted in the Beloved. Now, I know that I've come here today to a passage of Scripture that's difficult. I want you to gird up your loins of your mind To look at the strongest passage there is in the Word of God, we're going to talk about election. We're going to talk about predestination. And these are two words that are frightening. People run to cover when these words are mentioned. Why, you'd think that they're dirty words. But may I say to you, they're Bible words. And they mean something. And I hope we won't be extreme, but I think that we need to see here that it's something that's very important to see. He says here, according as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world in order that we should be holy and without blame before him. Now, this verse and these verses that follow this, they're essentially the most difficult, Verses in Scripture to grasp. They are, first of all, let me say, they are repulsive to the natural man. And unfortunately, the average believer today finds them difficult to accept at face value. The statements are clear. The truth they contain is hard to receive. And I think these two verses are sort of like a walnut. Hard to crack, but there's a lot of goody on the inside. Now, let me just add this further word, according, as. Do you notice that? According, as. And that's the connective which modifies the preceding statement. The spiritual blessings that you and I are given, they are in accord with the divine will. All is done in perfect unison with God's purpose. This world, my friend... And this universe is going to operate according to the plan and purpose of Almighty God. That's important for us to see. Now, we need to get the perspective that in this section here, we see that God, the Father, planned the church. God, the Son, paid for the church. God, the Holy Spirit, protects the church. Now, the source of all of our blessings is actually the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he's blessed us with all these spiritual blessings. And now he carries our mind back to the past eternity, and he makes us realize that salvation is altogether of God, not at all of ourselves. Actually, you and I learn that you and I are not the originator, we're not the promoter, nor are we the consummator of our salvation. He did it all. Now we're looking at this that we've said is very difficult. And it's been put in an old hymn. "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, but thou hast chosen me.'" And we have one that's very popular today. "'Jesus sought me when a stranger,' "...wandering from the fold of God, He to rescue me from danger interposed His precious blood." God is the one who planned our salvation way back yonder in eternity before you and I were even in this world at all. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that came down in time and He wrought out our salvation upon the cross." when the fullness of time had come. And then God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who convicts us today. He brings us to the place of faith in Christ, saving knowledge of the grace of God that's revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I heard this story many years ago. It's the story of a black boy down in Memphis, Tennessee. He wanted to join the church, and it was a good conservative church. And the deacons were examining him. And they asked him, they said, how did you get saved? Well, he said, I did my part and God did his part. And these deacons thought they had him. They said, what was your part and what was God's part? And the boy said this. He said, my part was the sinning. He said, I ran from God as fast as these rebellious legs would take me and my sinful heart would lead me. I ran from him. And he says, you know, he done took out after me till he done run me down. My friend, there's nothing in a theology book that tells it as well as that. God is the one that did the saving. Our part was the sinning part. It's like a little story that the late Dr. Harry Ironside told about the little boy that was asked, have you found Jesus? And the little fellow said, well, sir, I didn't know he was lost. But he says, I was, and he found me. (laughs) My friend, you don't find Jesus. He finds you. He's the one that went out after the lost sheep, and he's the one that found him. Now, listen to this. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. And without blame before him in love. Now, God chose believers in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that means before all time, way back under an eternity past. May I say to you, that means then that you and I didn't do the choosing, and he didn't choose them because they'd do some good, but he chose them so they could do some good. And the entire choice is thrown back upon the solitary sovereignty of the wisdom and the goodness of God. My friend was Spurgeon that once put it like this. You know, he says, God chose me before I came into the world. Because he said, if he'd waited until I got here, he never would have chosen me. It's God who has chosen us. And we've not chosen him. You remember the Lord Jesus put it like this to his own yonder in the upper room. He said, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And as Dr. Camel Morgan put it years ago, he said, you know, that puts the responsibility on him. If he did the choosing, then he's responsible. And that makes it quite wonderful, friends. You remember God said about the children of Israel, he said, "...hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I'll punish you for your iniquities." Now, God chose Israel in time. He chose the church in eternity. God made the choice in eternity And there hasn't arisen anything unforeseen to God that has caused him to revamp his program or to change his mind. He knew the end from the beginning. He did it for a purpose, in order that we should be holy and without blame before him. God chose us in order to sanctify us. That's the reason for the choosing. He saves us and he sanctifies us that we might be holy. Now, that's positive, and this has to do with the inner life of the believer. A holy life is demanded by election. Now, don't tell me that you can say, well, I'm elected, and there are a great many folk that are saying today, well, I've been saved by grace, and I can do as I please. Paul has already answered that. Paul says, shall we continue in sin because we've been saved by the grace of God? And his answer is, God forbid. You can't do it, friends. If you go on living in sin, it's just because you're a sinner that hasn't been saved. Because a sinner that's been saved is going to change his way of living. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And then we're to be without blame. That's the negative side. The believer in Christ is seen before God as without blame. God would not permit Balaam to curse Israel or find fault with his people. Listen to what is said in Numbers 23:21: He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord is God's with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Yes, but if you go down there into the camp of Israel, God did find fault with them, and he judged them. And he was sanctifying and purifying that camp. My friend, if God has chosen you, it's in order that he might make you holy, in order that he might make you without blame. And therefore, it means that your life has been changed. And if it hasn't, you're just not one of the elect, that's all. And God wants his children to live lives that are not marked or spotted with sin. And he's made every provision to absolve them from all blame. Remember, he says, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he's the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by the way, that answers once and for all this question of the limited atonement that Christ only died for just the elect. This verse makes it clear died for the world. And I don't care who you are, there's a legitimate offer that's been sent out to you today from God, and that offer is you can't hide behind it and say, I'm not the elect. You are the elect if you hear his voice. You know, it's glorious and wonderful that the God of heaven would elect some of us down here and save us, and I don't propose to understand all that. Fact of the matter is, I just believe it. <laughs> you know, the picture our Lord gave is, here's a great big wide highway, and off of that highway there's a little narrow entrance, and the entrance has on it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And he has on it another, I am the Doah, by me if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Go in and out and find pasture. Now, the very interesting thing is that broad way that leads down, that everybody's on, it gets narrower and narrower until finally it leads to destruction. Now, you can keep on it, but you can also turn off if you want to. You can turn off where the invitation is, Him that cometh to me, I'll no wise cast out. You can enter in. And the very interesting thing, it is a narrow way as you enter. But after you get in, he says, I've come that they might have lie, Might have it more abundantly. Oh, my friend, it's wide. they talk about the broad way. The broad way is after you get through the gate. And Let me tell you, that's a broad way. The picture is there. And the picture is, you have a perfect right in order to make the choice. And it's a legitimate invitation that whosoever will may come. And Moody used to put it in his very quaint way. He said, the whosoever wills are the elect, and the whosoever wants are the non-elect. It's up to you, therefore. The Lord has given you an invitation, and whosoever will may come. (laughs) Don't tell me you've been left out. You haven't. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son of whosoever. And whosoever, that means Vernon McGee, it means you. You can put your name there too. And you can come just because there is the elect. But the interesting thing is we don't know who they are. And you have no right to say that you are the non-elect. Because if you open your heart, you can come. And that's all you have to do. This idea today that you've got mental reservations, I don't believe you have. <laughs> your problem is you've got sin in your life, and the Bible condemns it. And if you come to Christ, it means you'd have to turn from that. You don't want to turn from it. Now, may I say to you again and again, the Word of God emphasizes that we've been chosen in Him. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, "...we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, the loved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth." And Peter, in his epistle, 1 Peter 1, 2, "...elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ." And the interesting thing is, election and sanctification seem to go together. If God has saved you, he hasn't saved you because you're good, because you're not. I think Paul put it in such a marvelous way over in the epistle to the Romans. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Now, God made it very clear to Moses. He says, So then it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercies. Now, when Moses went to God in prayer, God says, Moses, I'm going to hear and answer your prayer, but not because you're Moses and the deliverer. Because I will show mercy on whom I will. I'll show compassion on whom I will. And it's not the him that willeth, nor him that worketh. But it's the God who shows compassion. You want to experience the compassion of God? Then you'll have to return to Him. Now, I think the best illustration that we have of this is over in the book of Acts, over in the 27th chapter. You remember that Paul, after that terrific storm, the ship was listing and about ready to go down, and they had already cast some of the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. "...now Paul went to the captain, and he said, Be a good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of the Lord, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and, lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee." Now, that's God's foreknowledge. That's election. God elected that nobody on that ship would be lost." But you remember, a little while after, Paul found a group of these sailors. They were making them a boat. And they intended to go overboard with that boat and try to get to land that way. And Paul said to the captain, he said, Now, look, except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Well, now, couldn't the captain say, Well, wait a minute, you already told me that none would perish. That's right. That's what Paul said. Now, that's God's side. But he also said, except you abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. That's their side. They've got to stay in the ship. Now, may I say to you today, God knows who the elect are. I don't. Someone came to Spurgeon one time and said, Mr. Spurgeon, if I believe like you do, I wouldn't preach like you do. You say you believe that they're the elect. Well, then, you preach as if everybody can be saved. Well, he says they can but he says, you see, if God had put a yellow streak up and down the backs of the elect, I'd go up and down the streets, lifting up shirt tails, finding out who had the yellow streak up and down their back. Then I'd give them the gospel. But well, he didn't do that. He told me to preach it to every creature, and whosoever will may come. My friend, that is our in order. And as far as I'm concerned, until God gives me the roll call of the elect, I'm going on the whosoever will gospel. That is the one that we're to preach today. And as someone else has put it like this, on the door to heaven from our side, it's whosoever will, man. I'm the door. By me, if any man, any man. That means you, any man. Well, he's going to come in and find pasture. He's going to find life, my friend. But when you get on the other side of the door, someday in heaven, you're going to look back, and on that door, it'll be written, Chosen in Him, for the foundation of the world. But you know I haven't seen that side of the door yet, and therefore, I give God, since He is God, the right to plan His church. A friend of mine down in Florida showed me the blueprints of a home he was going to build, and he's built a lovely home on a lake, and I looked at the blueprint, and he planned it. They had just laid the foundation. He showed me where everything was going to be. His wife told us where this would be and that. And we went home and visited him. And, you know, it's just like they planned it. Now, they didn't have any supernatural knowledge, but as far as I know, nobody's questioned whether they had the right to do that. They did have the right, and that's the way they did it, according to their plan. Now, God's plan, the church. After all, this is his universe, and the church is his church. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And love is connected with not this verse, but the next one.